Thank you for listening to our Love City Church podcast. Visit us online at www.lovecitychurch.ca. We pray that this message encourages you and strengthens you in your walk with Jesus. Fantastic. Well, we're going to get right into our message today. Uh, we are starting a series called Making Room, and uh, it's going to be fantastic. And I want to encourage you to invite your friends, invite family to come during the Christmas season when they, when they do are in town, specifically on Christmas Eve. Uh, it's going to be a really great day. We're going to have a special song. We're going to have fresh cinnamon buns and, and apple cider, and we'll try to get some gluten-free ones for Mr. John and, and Nathan and the rest of the gluten-free folks. And uh, it's going to be great. And we got a message that's going to be fantastic, and you're going to really, really enjoy that. So we're going to get into the series today called uh, Making Room. And you know, Christmas is about a lot of stuff. Uh, Christmas has a lot going on to it. You know, some, you want to go get your kids uh, Christmas, uh, want to get a picture with Santa Claus, or you want to go uh, do the whole, you know, carrots and the, the milk and the cookies thing. And you, know, you want to go Christmas shopping and spend tons of money, or you go to the mall and it's terrible, because especially Chinook Mall, it's just chaos. And we have all these traditions and my wife and I and our kids we sleep underneath the tree downstairs and and uh, and watch a home alone or elf depending on the day uh, we try to watch them both and it's just we these traditions and these fun things and all those things are awesome and you should enjoy yourself but it's just really important and I have to say it as we start this series series it's important that we remember why Christmas exists and what we're going to do for the next four weeks is we're going to walk through the narrative of the of the Christmas story and I'm going to pull out some things that maybe you haven't seen before uh, in this text and uh, talk a little bit about these four areas of people, family, contentment, and Jesus that are all wrapped up in this Christmas story. And if you have your phone, all of our notes are available on your Uversion app. In the Uversion, go to More Events, type in Love City Church, and all of our notes are there if you just want to take the notes on your phone as well. But what we're going to do is we're just going to get right into this this morning. And I want to read a scripture by starting in John chapter 114, just to kind of reiterate the point that I just made, that uh, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Christmas is all about the fact that God, wrapped in flesh, came in baby form, lived a sinless life, and He died on a cross, a brutal death for you and for me, took our guilt and our shame and all the sin of this world upon His shoulders, and he died and was buried for three days and is the only person that rose from the dead. Every other God has been dead and died and buried in the grave. Uh, and Jesus rose again and through that he gave us the power to have eternal life. Uh, his sickness in our body is, is eradicated. Healing and restoration and peace and love. That's the message of Christmas. That's the message of what Jesus did. Jesus came to change our lives. And so I want to jump into a specific story in Luke chapter 2. And I want to read it to you this morning in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. It says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem to the town of David because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He was there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, and she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. 
no guest room available for them. So in Luke 2.5, we see very clearly that it says that he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him. Just a few points I want to make that Joseph and Mary uh, were married when they went to Bethlehem. Matthew 5, or Matthew 1 teaches us this. It says, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he, she gave him the name Jesus. So when they went to Bethlehem, uh, right after uh, Joseph woke up from that dream uh, of, of being told to uh, marry and not divorce, or marry, marry, and not divorce her, he instantly went and got married to her. They became one, but they were not one uh, through uh, a consummation of the marriage. They did not have sexual relationships with one another until Christ was born. And so when they went to Bethlehem, they were already married. And it's important, there's some important details I want to draw out for you. In Luke 2, 6 and 7, it says, While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. Notice this, while they were there, a time came. The days were completed for her to give birth. Many of our movies and many of our pageants and plays that we watch, they portray a Mary and a Joseph on a donkey rushing into Bethlehem because Mary's about to push this baby out. We don't see that indicated in the text. In fact, that phrase, uh, time, time that were there, actually implies that they actually were potentially in Bethlehem from three, potentially seven to even 14 days prior to the birth of Jesus. This is a really important fact. You see, Ryan, why are you telling us this? Why, why is that important? It's important today for the foundation of what I want to share with you. It's significant because if Mary and Joseph had already been in Bethlehem for several days, or perhaps even weeks, the place where they were staying was not an emergency shelter found in the heat of rapidly increasing contradictions of labor. Meaning that when they had got there, they had already potentially found a place to have their child. It wasn't this heat of the moment emergency, if you've seen the movie Nativity, where Joseph is banging on the, door, the doors, help us, help us, help us. Supposedly, based on this text and what these Greek words imply, they were already there and already instituted a place for themselves to stay. And in, in verse, uh, six, or verse 7, it says, she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in the manger because there was no guest room available for them. So often, as I said, we see the picture of Joseph going to the door, banging on a door, and the innkeeper saying, no, we, not, not, we don't want you here. And he goes from house to house to house looking for a place to stay. This is very important for where we're going today for you to understand what the, 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 what the text actually implies. So it's, it's, it's fun I don't want to get caught up in all the details of the Christmas story because ultimately Jesus came to earth and died. But today it's important you understand that, that when we think of the word in, when we think of Jesus going, Mary and Joseph going to look for a place to stay, we often think of this, a holiday inn. We often think that Jesus, they went to the front desk and said, hey, we're here. They said, oh, there's a huge convention in town. The census is happening. I'm really sorry. We booked all our rooms. There's no room. There's nowhere. I mean, the hot tub's full. It's disgusting. The place is full. Sorry, you got to go to the next one. Go to Best Western. Go down to the street, down to, down to the, all the other hotels. No one would accept us and no one would embrace us. Or that they would go to a bed and breakfast. And sorry, the bed and breakfast is full. I'm really sorry. You can't come in. That is not really the reality. And in order for you to understand what really happened, you have have to understand the original Greek word that was used in this context. 
The Greek word kataluma actually means a lodging place, usually translated an upper room or a guest room, not the word inn. That's very important for us to understand because Luke mentioned in the scripture that there was no place in the upper room. There was no place in the guest room. There was never any Greek language insinuating that there was an inn, an innkeeper, a hotel, nor that they were rejected. I mean, if we look at a modern home, look at this modern home, a Jewish home, you see the top floor is where they generally live their lives. And the bottom floor, they would actually allow animals. Here's a kind of a better picture for you. Uh, you see the top, that's where they would live. And they would enter there and they would actually allow the animals to roam in the garage area or the basement area or the storage area. And they would there have storage and maybe a small kitchen and they would had their chickens and their goats and their, sometimes their cattle inside of the basement of their home. And so we hear another kind of picture, that they, the, the top of the floor, and this is kind of a picture of a, a first century Jewish home. They would have the bottom floor would be reserved for the, 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 the daily happenings of the home as well as the animals. And so in that place, they, they didn't just have pack and plays. And so obviously, when they say they laid him in a manger, they actually, this is a cement manger. It's like a feeding trough. And so what they did was, is they laid down a wrapped Jesus in medical bandage and laid him in a feeding trough. But it, it's very, very important we understand what I'm getting to this morning. In Luke chapter 2-4, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth to Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. Bethlehem was a town of about 300 people. 300 people. And in this town, if you look at an ancient map, you don't even see Bethlehem on the map. And so when, when Joseph took Mary to go into Bethlehem, in fact, many theologians believe that they were actually going to make a move to Bethlehem, relocate their family there, because Joseph's family was there. Joseph, basically, two-thirds of the population of Bethlehem was his family. And so, when he went into this place, it wasn't like he was going in and talking to all these strangers. When Joseph and Mary walked into this 300 uh, population city, I don't know if you're from a small town, but generally when you walk into a small town and you've lived there for a long time, everybody knows your name and your garbage and your dirty laundry. <laughs> And so here's Mary and Joseph coming into this place, coming into Bethlehem. The reality is, is that Joseph and Mary would not have been turned away from an ancestral home, even if they, there was no room, especially if Mary was pregnant. This would be a big Jewish no-no. It would be, as a good Middle Eastern host, the head of the house could turn the couple away could not turn the couple away, and nor would he ask his guests to find alternate uh, lodging. The solution was, is that you can't stay in our guest room because it's full, and, but, but what you can do is you can actually stay in our garage. The, 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 the picture would be that, I'm going to shut this off, okay? I think it's cut. The, the, the difference would be that, that it'd be like you opening up your garage putting a little bassinet in there and putting a little fire in there or maybe you going in your basement in your storage room and saying, listen, I don't have any room in my upper house, but I can, you can stay down in my garage if you'd like. And so it means that, that when Mary and Joseph stayed in this house, Mary and Joseph were not rejected. They were not put off. It's very important you realize that about this narrative. 
Because we have this picture that when Mary and Joseph, when when Jesus came into this world, he came into this world uh, surrounded by rejection, surrounded by people not wanting him. And we've had many uh, sermons to, to preach to that kind of sensational idea. And it's not bad. It's not a bad thought. But the reality is, the truth is, Jesus actually was born into a family. He was actually born into the environment of hospitality. In fact, when Jesus was born, he was born with relatives being very near and they were tending to Mary's needs. And not to say that they were there and it was like, it was perfect because yes, there was a cow next to him and they were in the manger and the ideals were, the the situation wasn't ideal. And yes, it wasn't exactly what they imagined when they were going to have a child. But the reality is it's very important you understand that Jesus's first encounter on this earth was he was born into hospitality. He was born into acceptance. He was born into approval. Mary and Joseph experienced what that meant. That would mean this. You know that feeling you get around Christmas time when you just feel like you don't want to be alone? That feeling that, man, I just got to be with friends or I just got to be with family. We often think that's a Santa Claus idea or a Miracle on 34th Street idea. That is a Christmas idea. That is a Jesus idea. That is a New Testament church idea. When Jesus came on the planet, he set a model of what life should look like as a New Testament believer. Jesus was born into the family, hospitality, togetherness. They did things together. It was family. It was fiber. It was together. It was one. He was born into an environment. That's why Christmas is not about you. Christmas is actually about your brother and your sister in Christ. Church is actually about being in a place of hospitality. Christmas is actually about you extending yourself to people who are in need, to people who are your brothers and sisters, Christmas is actually more about you and I opening our lives to people than it is about our ideas of Christmas. When I realized that Jesus came into this way, I realized that hospitality started, like Jesus started his life with hospitality. He started his life being surrounded by family. He started his life sharing life with one another. And this idea of hospitality is an incredible, incredible reality that has been happening all from the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament. This is a God discipleship idea. Now, in a North American context, it's not exactly an embraced idea. It's not necessarily something that you and I think of. I have to admit, around Christmas time, I want to share my life. But predominantly, I want to kind of keep to myself, right? You want to kind of enjoy your time and be alone. And I get it. I feel it. But it's in the fiber of our culture. But as a New Testament disciple, follower of Jesus Christ, I want to challenge you this morning to make this season about opening your lives to people. And this concept goes all the way back. This biblical concept goes back to the ancient world. And this idea of hospitality was graciously receiving alienated persons into your land. It was the concept of welcoming guests and actually welcoming strangers. In the Bible, hospitality involves receiving strangers, people that are passing through your life, people that enter your life that could potentially exit your life without focusing or investing into only those that you are close to or strengthening relationships that you already have. Hospitality in this culture is different from ours. 
When, when someone would come into town in the ancient culture, in the Old Testament, they didn't have a McDonald's or a Starbucks to stop at to put their feet up, to have a nice espresso, and to go to the Wii. They didn't, couldn't do that. They, they, did, they didn't have that. They relied on the hospitality of strangers. They would walk into a city and literally walk up to the first door that they saw. They would knock on the door and say, hi, I'm visiting town. And it was the ancient uh, cultural practice to open their home. And that person's obligation was to serve them hand and foot. The idea of serving Strangers. In fact, Leviticus 19 says this in verse 33, when a foreigner or a stranger resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner or stranger residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners, strangers in Egypt, and I am the Lord your God. I've been reading this blog on Desiring God about strategic hospitality. It says, for the people of God in the Old Testament, the duty of hospitality came right from the center of who God was. I am the Lord your God who made a home for you and brought you there with all my might and all my soul. Therefore, you shall love the stranger as yourself. Your values shall now value my values. So God says, listen, I actually took you out of Egypt. You were a stranger. You were estranged. I took you out of Egypt. I gave you a home. I gave you love. In that same way, I want you to share the same values with people who you don't know, with strangers and individuals that maybe you don't normally uh, uh, develop relationship with in your life. Now you say, Ryan, are you talking about stranger danger here? Like, you just walk down the street, hey, you, you want to come to my house for dinner with my kids? I don't think so. I'm not referring to literal random people on the side of the road that you think, well, he looks like he's tweaking out, but Ryan said to invite him into my home. (laughs) Strangers are individuals in your life that you don't know well. People you go to work with that work seven cubicles down. Hey, John. Hey, Bob. Have a good day, you two. These are people, neighbors down the street that you've walked by and you've seen them. Hey, how's it going? Good. It all looks good. Yeah, yours too. All right, see ya. These are the family members who you've been maybe distant from, cousins you didn't know or family members that you just haven't known over the years. These aren't just random people you drive down the street. You are coming to my house for dinner. This is people in your sphere, in your life that are stranger to your world that you know through association they've come into your life, but you don't have an existing relationship with them. The word hospitality actually is the word love of strangers. (laughs) In Genesis chapter 18, look at this. Uh, It says that the Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. And Abraham looked up and he just saw three men standing there. And when he saw them, he literally ran. He hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them. And look at this. He bowed low to the ground. And he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought. And then you may wash your feet and rest into this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed. And then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Abraham had no clue who these men were. He's literally working in his shop. He looks up in three, three, three men and he runs over and literally gets down on his hands and knees and says, my Lord, let me serve you. Let me wash your feet. Let me get you food. He has no clue that these men were three angels sent by God. And he sets an example as the father of our faith, the ancestral example of what the Old Testament looked like when it came to hospitality. But then we jump into the New Testament, and it's very clearly Romans 12, 13. Look at this. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Look at this. Practice 
hospitality. So the word hospitality, as I said, means a love of strangers. It means a means of friendship, to extend fellowship, to welcome, to receive, to, to feed, to eat, to provide lodging, foot washing, serving, equipping travelers. It speaks to the idea of having an intimate moment with someone. I mean, washing someone's feet is a pretty intimate moment. <laughs> so it speaks to engaging. It speaks to allowing in. It speaks to you making motion towards someone in your life. And that word practice has a really interesting word. It means it's the word given to. It's dioko. Say dioko. Dioko is the Greek word for uh, to practice, be given to. This word actually means to pursue, to follow after, to press forward. The idea here, when you practice hospitality, you're given to hospitality, it means that you're actually making motion towards people. You're actually, the verb, making action towards individuals that you might not know very well. You are stepping towards them. And look what, what Jesus says about this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 40. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. If you receive a prophet as one who speaks for God, you will be given the same reward as a prophet. And if you receive righteous people because of their righteousness, you'll be given a reward like theirs. And if you give even a cup of cold water to one of the least of my followers, you will surely be rewarded. He says, anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. Anytime you receive someone, anytime you show hospitality towards someone or the word receive, anytime you admit someone or accept someone or make a forward motion towards someone, the scripture teaches us that you're actually receiving Christ. That every single time you receive that coworker or that neighbor or that family member that you really don't like, or anytime you receive someone or accept someone or motion towards them in your life by serving them with your life, you are actually welcoming and serving the Lord. The scripture very clearly says that this idea of, of giving to hospitality, to practice hospitality, also has another meaning of the servant of the king. In fact, in the qualifications to be in leadership at the church, according to the Pauline epistles, the idea of hospitality is the, one of the, the highest forms of, of evidence that this person has the ability to serve in the church and is actually the word deacon. So if you came today and you served in any capacity, you're considered a deacon. And that means as a deacon, a person who's serving and waiting on table is actually showing hospitality. The last word that has the connotation of this is actually a negative word. The word given to or practice actually means to persecute. And the reason Paul wrote this practice hospitality is because a majority of the people that came to them and knocked on their door had just been ran out of their home by their persecutors. They burned down their house. They stole their goods. They threatened their life. And so all they had to their name was the coat on their back. And they ran to this home, assuming it would be a Jew Jewish home, with the custom to let me in. And Paul said to the Christian church, you need to practice hospitality because there's crazy amounts of persecution happening in our world today. And when someone comes to you, you got to know that you are actually serving Jesus every single time you open your door and have a meal with someone that you don't know. And in fact, today, in our world today, I want to encourage you to invite people into relationship who are stepping out in their faith 
You recognize someone stepping out in their faith and you don't know them very well, but they're passionate for God and they're telling people about Jesus and they keep getting rejected and they keep getting mocked and they keep getting made fun of and they can't seem to see breakthrough with their family and their wife doesn't want to be in relationship with anymore. If you see that type of a person in this church, it is your God-given responsibility to go and show them love and affection and refresh them because they're stepping out for their faith and being persecuted for it. And they deserve the blessing from the Lord of being refreshed by somebody in this house. The idea of hospitality is this crazy thought. So if I, if, I, if I put all those definitions together, this is basically what it would mean. To practice hospitality means to pursue strangers or people you don't know well as a servant by feeding and helping meet their needs in order to extend friendship and fellowship with them. Let's look at another scripture in the New Testament about hospitality, 1 Peter 4, 7 and 10. Look at this. The end of all things is near. Thank you, Peter. The end of all things is near. It's all coming to an end. It's over, folks. The curtain's coming. I mean, what a way to start this, mention this section of scripture. He's not ending the letter. So we've got a little bit more to read. It's like, dude, like, can you end with that? Like, this is, I'm still in the middle. I've got to keep me motivated. This isn't even his second letter. This is his first letter. The end of all things is near. He wrote this, I mean, 2,000 years ago. So here, 2,000 years ago or so, he's writing a book to the church saying, you need to know something, that the end is near. This is a good indicator for you on how you should be living your life. Knowing that at any moment, at any second, the Bible says that it comes like a thief in the night. When you least expect it, when you least understand it, none of us will know Christ will come back for his bride. He will come back for his church. And when that day comes, those who are not in a relationship with Jesus Christ will experience the, the most tremendous fear and trepidation. And we as followers of Jesus have to know that it is our responsibility to know the end is near. And we have a responsibility to practice hospitality for people who do not know God. Because the end is near. He said this 2,000 years ago. Don't you think we're a little bit closer than then? The end is near. He says, be sober-minded. Come on, be able to think clearly, be able to pray so that you can stay on guard and you can stay alert. He says, the end is near. Christ is coming. Our world's falling apart. Things are going crazy. Wars everywhere. All sorts of arguments and cultural conversations about stuff. You're like, is this really happening? The world is coming to an end. The time is near. And then he says this. But above all else, this is the most important thing you can do. I find that very interesting. That Peter's talking about the end of our world as we know it. And the first thing he says is, well, above all else, I want you to know the most important thing you can do is you can love each other deeply. Because love covers a multitude of sin. And then he tells you how to love each other deeply. He says, the way for you to love each other deeply is actually for you to offer hospitality, look at this, to one another without what? Grumbling. He said, listen, our time is short. It is but a mist. My daughter is nine years old. What the heck happened? Life is short. Hear my words. You have to understand everything you do with your life, every business you run, every child you have, every marriage in your life, not every marriage, your marriage. <laughs> it's a new theology I'm teaching. 
your marriage, your life, your happenings in your life. You have to live a life that understands, man, I want to live for, for a future and I want to invest myself into my future. Man, I want to see my kids, 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 sure. But you also have to live every step and every day knowing that the end is near. And Peter here says the best way for you to live your life in this culture and especially in the Christmas season is to, above all else, love each other deeply. Because guess what? That love actually covers a multitude of sin. Notice it doesn't talk about God's love there. So when I receive someone, when I welcome someone, they are actually experiencing the love of Christ through me and their sins are actually being taken care of and covered through me as a conduit of God. And how does that happen? How does love cover a multitude of sin? Peter says, show hospitality. Invite someone on the section, section C, always sits in section C and kind of looks at section A and, hey, I know that guy or I know that girl and I, hey, hey, how you doing, how you doing? The, the, the word of the Lord will be for you today as brothers and sisters cry. Section C needs to invite section A out for a coffee. <laughs> and section middle, the, the really good Christians here, I'm just kidding. <laughs> We, this is what it's saying. It's saying, hey, you don't just invest in the relationships that you have. Then is near. Invest into other people who might need strength and encouragement. Maybe there's someone over here that needs, maybe they, there's a marriage or a relationship or, or a life that needs some encouragement and you hang out in the same circle. Now I get it. I understand it. Going to church, I know those people. But biblically, foundationally, the scripture teaches us that you are actually supposed to love strangers. And the most important thing you can do when the world is crumbling all around us is to, above all else, love one another deeply by extending yourself and loving strangers, people that you know, but you really don't know. And serve them. Pick up the towel. Wash their feet. Invest in their life financially. Invest in their life in prayer. Be around them. And guess what? I'm going to say this. You might hang out with them, and I hate to break it to you, but you might not like them. The Bible never commands you to like anybody. It commands you to love them. So get over yourself. And realize that serving one another in love is the expectation of Scripture, not liking one another in love. And you notice here that Peter says, do not grumble. Why would Peter say this? Don't you think Peter knew? What if I go to their house and I don't like their food? I'm a Jew. I don't eat pork. What if they serve me this big, massive platter of pig? What do I do? Well, biblically, you just eat it, but whatever. What do I do if, like, I really don't like these people? What do I do if we get there, we have nothing to talk about? Well, my wife and I make a list of talking points for every person we get together with. Some it's easy, some it's not, and we just do that. And if not, we say, hey, you want to pray? No, I'm just kidding. I never do that. <laughs> don't do that. That's weird. Unless it's at the end and you've had a good conversation, it might warrant it. But just to say, hey, I got nothing else to talk about. You want to ask the Spirit of God what we should say? <laughs> don't do that. It's kind of awkward. <laughs> Peter said this because he knew it was awkward. Peter said, don't grumble, because he knew it's not normal to ask Bob six cubicles down, who you don't think his jokes are very funny, and he sometimes comes late to work and it bothers you. But when the Holy Spirit, hey, Bob needs some, some support. 
You can serve him hand and foot. And you'll see what will happen. The word grumbling here, I'll just show you this and we'll get into our last story, actually means gone good, goodzo, gone goodzo. Murmur, a muttering, a secret debate, a, a secret displeasure not openly avowed, discontented complaining, saying anything against someone in a low tone, complaining in a petulant or whining manner, my son does that sometimes, about your discontent or your potential discomfort. God comes over to you, Mr. John McMechan, and taps on your shoulders and says, all right, John, ask that guy. And you're like, oh, God, I don't want to do that. This is so terrible. You've never done this before, but I know I have. John, oh, my gosh, like, that person's so weird. They smell kind of funny. I don't like them very much. Ooh, that Bible's saying, don't do that. It's, if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you've got to get over the fact that you're not going to like sometimes being with people that aren't like you. You gotta get over the fact that, that there's people you're gonna hang out with in, in this Christmas season. Don't make it just about you and your family. This Christmas season, invite that family over for dinner. And they might come over and it might be stinking awkward. But guess what? You're serving Jesus. You might be entertaining angels and you don't even know it. I'll end on this story here in Acts. We're gonna read it together, chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue in Damascus so, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. He replied, well, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Now, if you know anything about this story, you know that Paul Pryor, just a few chapters prior, had stood uh, and watched a man, a grown man, murdered by rocks. Imagine taking a, a massive stone and dropping it on someone's skull. A man named Stephen had stood up for his faith and Saul encouraged these men to murder him. And Saul took their coats. It says in the scripture, he held their coats for him. Hey, let me give you a cloak. Well, give you more, you know, more arm for that. And he grabbed all these things and he threw them over his arm. And Paul, or Saul, stood there and watched a man brutally murdered in front of him. I believe in that moment, something began to change in Saul's life. Some, something began to shift. One day, he went to the governor and said, I want to, these Christians are bugging me. I don't care how I feel inside. I'm still going to stop them. There's something about it. He's on his way. And Jesus comes and meets with him, knocks him off of his horse, has his experience with Jesus, and says, you need to go into the city. Okay, so now that's happening. And these men lead, now Paul being blind, into the city of Damascus. In the meantime... It says in the scripture, in Damascus, there was a disciple. I loved it because Ananias was actually a prophet. He was actually a well-known minister in that area. And the Bible chose to call him a what? Disciple. 
In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. Now, Judas on Straight Street, many theologians don't know who this man is, but their assumption, or after their study, they've come to the conclusion that Judas was a friend of Saul's and was not a believer. He was a Jew, but not a believer. Therefore, was condoning the work of Paul or Saul. And so when Saul was actually going to stay with Judas in the city, and so Judas, or, or Saul was actually taken to the home of an unbeliever. So here's, Judas, here's Saul, blind, comes into the house frantically with three soldiers, and Judas is like, Saul, what's up, dude? I can't see. I can't explain it. I know it's going to seem weird, but you just give me a chair. I don't know what's going on. I heard this voice. He said this. So Judas is like, dude, like, have you been smoking that stuff I've been giving you? Or like... Like, are we, like, there? Like, what's going on here? So, so Judas is just like, dude, like, okay, my gosh, come in. Let's get your feet washed and get you some food. And, oh, my, what's wrong? What's, what's going on? Judas's mind's being blown. Saul's mind's being blown. And meanwhile, Ananias is on his hands and knees and a disciple talking to the Lord. And it says, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from, from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. And look what Ananias says. But Lord. <laughs> Sounds like he's complaining. I've heard rumors about this guy. Section C, heard some rumors about section A. I, I don't know all the story. Bob, I heard he's been like, oh, I don't know what's going on. I don't feel comfortable with this. But Lord, he said, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done for your holy people in Jerusalem. He's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But, but the Lord said, go, go, make motion towards this man. Often what keeps us from engaging people in hospitality is the um, assumptions we have about them. We look at the choices they make. Oh, I can't really relate to that. The assumptions we make about people keep us from engaging them out of fear of rejection or fear that we will judge them or fear of whatever. And so what happens is we say, Lord, like, do, 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 go to speak to, to Saul over there. Lord, I, I just tell you, he's not really my, my flow. I don't listen to that kind of music. I don't do that kind of thing. And he said to him, Lord, I can't do it. And he said, go. This is the man chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went and found Saul, and he went to the house and entered it. Now imagine this for a moment. Ananias is walking down the road, had a moment from God. The Holy Spirit spoke to him. You're supposed to go back into your work right now, and you're supposed to talk to that person. He's walking down the road. It's just started to snow. It's about 2 a.m. He gets out of bed. What are you doing, honey? Sweetheart, I know it's weird. I have to go to a guy's house I've never met before, and I'm just supposed to do that. But trust me, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do that. No, honey, get back in bed. You're stupid. You're sleepwalking. No, honey, uh, the Lord told me to do that. Stay here. Everything's good. Get in the car. Drive over. Get out of the, get out of the car in front of the house. And you see a, a candle flickering in the window. And you realize, oh my gosh, I have no idea who Judas, this, I don't know. I've, no, I've never been here before. I walk up to the house. Oh gosh, I have no idea who this person is. Knock, knock, knock. 
the door opens. Judas is like, what are you? What are you doing here? What are you selling? It's two in the morning. What are you doing? God spoke to me, told me to come and talk to your friend Saul. Okay. Saul said something like that might happen. <laughs> this is crazy. He lets him in the room, and over in the corner is this man with a big beard, hunched over. He's rocking back and forth. He's praying. The scripture says that Ananias walked over to this man who had rumors about being a mur He was there when Stephen was murdered, had rumors about being murdering Christians and actually was exactly who Ananias thought he was, the Christian killer, they called him. And he walks over to him. He motions toward him. He steps towards him. He goes up to him and he places his hand on his head. And the scripture says that Ananias says, Brother Saul. The first words that Saul heard when he came to the Christian faith was that you're a part of the family. Brother Saul. He laid his hands on him and he said a prayer and instantly his eyes were healed. He was filled with the Spirit. He was water baptized. It said he regained his strength. He stayed in that city with, uh, with the disciples for many days thereafter. And this is what I believe God wants to do in our lives. We'll read this final scripture and then we'll go into worship in, Hebrew, in Hebrews chapter 13 too. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without even knowing it. And finally, Luke 24, and then we're going to worship. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. This is the best way that you can worship Jesus this Christmas. best way you can worship the Lord and honor Jesus this Christmas is by inviting that person the Holy Spirit prompts you to invite over coffee, hang out, do something, games night, go for a walk, whatever. Do that this year and guess what? You might just experience where that man is blinded or that woman is spiritually blinded and the Holy Spirit says you need to pray for them and you go and you pray for them and something like scales falls from their eyes and they are radically saved and they get water baptized and they're filled with the Spirit and they become a follower of Jesus and they go on to preach the gospel and millions of people become saved and thousands of churches get planted all because you chose to be open with your lives by making room for people. Make this Christmas not about you. Make it about the person down the street, your coworker, your neighbor. And ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, who do you want me? I encourage you this, this Christmas, one person. One person in this church, take them out. One person at work and one person in your neighborhood. Even if you do one of those three things, I think you could make a significant eternal impact in the life of someone for eternity to come. And it's all because you made room for people and made Christmas about what Christmas was about, about Jesus coming to the earth to save people's lives. Amen? Come on, let's stand together. Let's worship the Lord together. Father, we thank you for your spirit, God, for your word. I just pray today, God, as we worship you, Father, as we exalt your name, as we lift you high, Lord, that you would even right now just begin to speak to people. Take off fear and trepidation when it comes to engaging other people. This is not just a spiritual gifting. This is an expectation as a follower of Jesus Christ. 
And I pray the Lord right now you'd speak to us. And that you would even drop people's names in our head and people in our minds today, God. And as we exalt you, I pray that your name would be exalted high above every other name. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to our Love City Church podcast. Visit us online at www.lovecitychurch.ca. We pray that this message encourages you and strengthens you in your walk with Jesus.